invite you to take a Bible and turn uh, in the New Testament to the Gospel of Matthew, the last chapter of Matthew, chapter 28. Last Sunday and this Sunday and next Sunday, I've been teaching the high school seniors. And today, uh, today we talked uh, during Sunday school about, if you look through history, at different schools of thought that have arisen on how the Bible's been interpreted. That for many centuries in the church, uh, the Bible was interpreted very allegorically. All the stories had allegories, and this represented that, and, and uh, that was uh, quite prominent. Then in the 1700s, you had the rise of uh, modernism or liberalism that basically was a frontal attack, not only on the Bible, but also on many systems of thought, philosophy. It questioned the authenticity of the Bible. It questioned the content of the Bible. Anything that was supernatural obviously was thrown out. And uh, I I told them it was like a a cadaver, a cat cadaver in a biology lab that basically was dissected then thrown in the trash. That's kind of what happened with the view of the Scripture. In the middle 1800s, a school of thought arose uh, called Neo-Orthodoxy. And uh, the new accepted teaching that basically said uh, liberalism or modernism had totally missed the point. And uh, in the Neo-Orthodox mindset that you can't approach the Bible from a scientific historical standpoint, but it's more you have to uh, realize there's two types of truth. There's scientific truth. And there's an upper tier of truth that involves a leap of faith to get to religious truth, basically believing things that you don't think are true. And therefore, when you read the Bible, it's not really whether it was true historically or really happened. It's what it means to you. And so whether Adam and Eve really lived or whether Jonah was swallowed by a great fish or whether Jesus Christ was raised physically from the dead, in the orthodox position would say that's really of no consequence, that is not important. What is important is what is God saying to you through the Scripture, that God speaks to you and it becomes, the Scriptures become the Word of God in your own life as they speak to you. And therefore, discussions of archaeology, uh, historicity of the Bible, all that, they just said that's really irrelevant. I said the way we approach the Bible is that it's true uh, historically, grammatically. There are many types of literature from, from prophecy to poetry to historical narrative to didactic teaching passages. And you have to take the rules of interpretation when you're reading in the Psalms where it says God walks on the wings of the wind. That's not a literal statement. That's a poetic statement expressing the majesty of God. When Jesus said, I am the door, he didn't mean he had a knob and hinges on him. It's making a point that he's the way to God. Um, And yet, when we read historical sections, like last week and what we'll see today with Jesus' resurrection from the grave, we don't think those are allegorical stories or things meant just to then you interpret it on your own as to what it means to you, but that it's true. Now, all that came about because I was in a worship service recently at a mainline church, and the pastor began before he read the Bible, and he said this, Listen for the Word of God as I read from the Scriptures these verses. Now, that, I knew without a doubt that was a neo-Orthodox position. Um, that he was saying, as I read the Scriptures, see if it becomes the Word or any of it becomes the Word of God for you. Our view is it is, is the Word of God, whether I think so or not, or whether you think so or not, that it is, and it doesn't depend on the hearer to determine if it is or not. 
Therefore, I invite you to hear the Word of God, beginning in verse 11. All that was introduction to me reading now. Beginning in verse 11, after the resurrection of Christ, of Matthew 28. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That ends the reading of God's holy word. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that Christ indeed is risen. We know that the resurrection has great implications for our lives, for our futures. We pray that our trust would be in Christ. If it is not, may you be pleased during these moments to open our eyes that we would understand the gospel and receive the gift of faith and believe that. Believe that Christ died for each of us, that he paid for our sin, that we are offered new life through him. We pray also that you might give us perspective about our lives and our purpose as individual believers and as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. Where I began reading, it lets us know Jesus has been raised from the grave. And then for over 40 days, he made appearances to hundreds of people. And verse 16 tells us the disciples go to the region called Galilee, and they go to a particular mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And as I want us to look at two weeks from today, the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, when we have that account in Acts chapter 1, before he ascends to heaven, he gives them their marching orders, what we call the Great Commission that's contained in verses 18 through 20. And they had left the security of jobs. In many ways, they had left family relationships and other obligations. They were now in places with which they were not familiar. And so they listened and they learned from Christ. Here's where the Great Commission begins in verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now it's tempting when we come to this passage to skip over that as though it's just a little preface. But... Everything rests on this claim that Jesus makes. All authority has been given to him. Therefore, because of that, we're given a commission, we're given a command to make disciples. But to to obey the command is dependent on the claim being true. If I were to walk up to you after this service, and and maybe we're strangers to each other, and I were to say, listen, I want you to go down Riverside Drive, couple of car dealerships down there. There's a Chevrolet dealership. There's a Ford dealership. Just go in that Ford dealership and and ask for the keys to a new car. Get in the car and drive it away. It's yours to keep. 
Well, you would wisely think, I can't do that, and if I do try to do that, I might get in a lot of trouble, maybe end up in jail. So I've given you a commandment, but if I give you a claim before that and say, I recently purchased a Ford dealership on Riverside Drive. Now, I want you to go there because I own all the inventory, ask for the keys to a car, it's yours. Your ability to obey the command your power to obey the command, your authority to obey the command, is based on the claim being true. And my claim would be, I own them all, therefore I'm going to give you one. Jesus, before he says, make disciples of all nations, says, all authority, everywhere, in heaven and on earth, covers everywhere, the whole gamut. All authority has been given to me, he says. Now, that's all authority in heaven and on earth. When Philippians says that God exalted him and that at his name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he has all authority. God raised up a, a man named Abraham Kuyper. He was the prime minister, the Dutch prime minister in the latter 1800s. He died around 19, in the 1920s. And he was a... Um, he was a reformed Calvinistic man of God who had a brilliant mind and did a lot of good for that country and other places in the world. And he said this that's been quoted by many people, at least parts of it. And I want to read you something Abraham Kuyper said with a little bit more of a modern translation of what Jesus was saying, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Here's, what, here's the way Abraham Kuyper put it. Jesus has authority over Satan and all demons, over all angels, good and evil, over the natural universe, natural objects and laws and forces, like stars, galaxies, planets, meteorites. He has authority over all weather systems, winds, rains, lightning, thunder, hurricanes, tornadoes, monsoons, typhoons, cyclones. He has authority over all their effects, tidal waves, floods, fires. Authority over all molecular and atomic reality, atoms, electrons, protons, neutrons, undiscovered subatomic particles, quantum physics, genetic structures, DNA, chromosomes. He has authority over all plants and animals, great and small, whales and redwoods, giant squid and giant oaks, all fish, all wild beasts, all invisible animals and plants, bacteria, viruses, parasites, germs, authority over all the parts and functions of the human body, every beat of the heart, every breath of the lungs, every electrical jump across a million synapses in our brains. Jesus has all authority over all nations and governments, congresses and legislatures, and presidents and kings and premiers and courts. He has all authority over all armies and weapons and bombs and terrorists, all authority over all industry and business and finance and currency, all authority over all entertainment and amusement and leisure and media, all authority over all education and research and science and discovery. He has all authority over all crime and violence, over all families and neighborhoods, and over the church and over every soul and every moment of every life that has ever or will ever be lived. He has all authority. There is nothing in heaven on earth or on earth over which Jesus does not have authority. That is, that he does not have the right and the power to do with as he pleases. 
That is why he has the right to say, go and make disciples. Now, what a mind-boggling quotation. And yet that's what Jesus is saying. All authority has been given to him. He has authority. He has the power to do whatever he chooses. And what he chooses here is for us to go and make disciples. So he gives this command. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, and so forth. Sounds like a lot of verbs. When I teach the inquirers class, we look at this verse or verses, and I say, circle all the verbs. And inevitably, we will circle words like go, make, baptizing, teaching, and so forth. But in the original language, there is one main imperative. There is one command, one primary command, and that is make disciples. Jesus wants us as his followers to make disciples of all nations, ethne, ethnic groups. Not just a nation being a geographical, the land within a geographical border, but within each geographical nation are many ethnic groups. America, so I've noted or read last night, has roughly 360 ethnic groups within it. The United States has that. Over 60 are not reached yet with the gospel. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So those are the verbs there. He says, make disciples. What is a disciple? It's a follower. It's a learner. Every time we learn from another person, in a sense, we are becoming their disciple. Whether it's a music lesson or a tutor in school or a coach. But spiritually, a disciple is a follower of Jesus Christ. A person who has realized their problem of sin that we all have who has recognized that Jesus was the Son of God, that he came and he lived a sinless life, that he allowed himself to be arrested and crucified on a cross as a substitute, even as a sacrificial lamb had been put to death in the Old Testament times as a sacrifice for people's sin. So Jesus is a substitute and he takes the wrath, the punishment for my sin on the cross. After he was dead, three days later he rose from the grave appeared to hundreds of people over 40 days, and then he gives this command that the disciples are to go into all the world and make other disciples. Only God can change hearts. We cannot change another person's heart. But we can go and we can seek to make disciples. How do we do this? Well, it's a big task. It's a big job. The world's population is 6.9 billion as of this week, from what I've read. Do you realize how it is multiplying? It reached, the world's population reached 1 billion back in 1804, and then 2 billion in 1923, and then 3 billion in 1960, and then 4 billion in 1974, and then 5 billion in 1987, and then 6 billion in 1999, and it should reach 7 billion next year in 2012. Now, billion is a lot. If we were to go back in time a million seconds, that would be two years. If we were to go back in time a billion seconds, that's 2,000 years. You know what the goal of Coca-Cola, the Coca-Cola company is? Some of you know. Some of you own stock in that company. Here it is. A Coke in the hand of every person on the planet. That's the goal. That's their stated goal. I didn't make that up. It's not secret. A Coke in the hand of every person on the planet. Imagine the difficulty of that task. The political barriers, the cultural barriers, the language barriers, the monetary uh, barriers. 
a Coke in the hand of every person on the planet. But Jesus says we're to make disciples of all nations. Well, how do we do that? Well, by going. I've mentioned there are a lot of verbs. Some are there to modify. How do we make disciples? By going, as you are going. That's what he says. Christianity is a missionary faith. We aim to make disciples in every group and to build up the church among every people. We don't spread the faith through war or coercion or violence. We spread it by the proclamation of the gospel and the demonstration of it in changed lives. That's what the Apostle Paul meant. When in 2 Corinthians 10, he says that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They are spiritual weapons. So our spiritual weapons are truth and prayer and love, not bullets and bombs. I'm not making a statement about warfare. I'm just saying we don't spread the Christian faith that way. That's not how we make converts. When people talk to me about, well, look at the rise of Islam. And I think... If you pointed a gun at my head and said, convert, you know, we'll count you. Yeah, I'm nominal. Yeah, you know, put my name down on your statistics. I mean, we're dealing with something completely. We're dealing with truth. We're dealing with changing the hearts when we talk about spreading the Christian faith. Now, I want us to focus for the last few moments on three calls from the Great Commission. There's an inherent call here to cross-cultural missions. There's a call to church planting and church missions. And there's a call to personal missions. And I have to begin by saying I really believe that there's nothing more offensive and politically incorrect than this. The idea of missions. When we talk about reaching other people with the gospel, it sounds arrogant, it sounds condemning. Typically they'll say, what gives you the right as Christians to invade and mess up their culture? And I agree with John Piper, there's not a culture or an ethnic group or a society or a religion or a language where Jesus does not have the right to be worshipped. He has authority to be King and Lord and Savior of everyone. So people have a right to hear. We won't talk about people's rights. They have a right to hear about Christ. So it's a call to cross-cultural missions. I mentioned that when he says all nations, it's saying ethnic group, unreached group, people group. So within geographical boundaries of a country, you may have many ethnic groups. And the idea is that the gospel has a witness and penetrates, at least where it's present, in each of those ethnic groups. I read a journal called Mission Frontiers. I don't read it every month, but it is a journal put out by the World Center, U.S. Center for World Missions in Pasadena. And it focuses on the unreached peoples of the world and the progress that's being made in missions. To show you how long I've been subscribing to it, I read it on paper. Now everything's online. But I have paper copies from some of the older ones. Not long ago, I was reading about Chechnya. It's this remote part of Russia, and it's in the mountains the Caucasian Mountains, there are five million people who live in that region. Now, the Caucasian Mountains rise real high between the Caspian and the Black Seas. And within the Caucasians, and particularly Chechnya, there are 40 distinct ethnic groups. And between the 40 groups, they speak 70 distinct languages or dialects. 
70. It's traditional, though there are, the, the culture is traditional, there are some Russian Orthodox churches which exist in the major cities, but basically the people are cultural Muslims, and they have almost no witness about Jesus Christ in any kind of relevant culture or any kind of relevant language form. Now, how do, how do we reach, how do we fulfill the Great Commission with those 40 ethnic groups in Chechnya and the Caucasus mountain region. It will only happen by planned going, cross-cultural missions. If we say, well, let's just let history run its course, um, you know, the Christian witness will eventually get there. Uh-uh. Not in that place. It has to be someone saying, some organization, some missionary saying, I'm going there. I'm going to invest my life. I'm going to take the gospel. I'm going to cross this cultural barrier, and I'm going to take the gospel there. In the Mission Frontiers article, it said, the complexity of the Caucasus increases when you add in geography and ethnicity. Imagine 40 language groups squashed into a landmass the size of about Georgia, and then add some very tall, steep mountains that can require six miles to travel, six hours to travel 10 miles to the next village, add languages and dialects which have 74 consonants, 74 consonants, add the difficulty for foreigners to hold long-term visas in Russia, and they went on to say it is little wonder that God's global church has not made a dent among the rural clans of these peoples. And it says Romans 10, 14 is a screaming reality for this part of God's earth. How can they hear about him unless someone tells them? How will anyone go and tell them without being sent? So the Great Commission includes a call to cross-cultural missions. Cross-cultural missions. It's a call to church planting and church missions. We have to work corporately as a local church, which we do. We have a number of associated ministry. We have outreach that we can only carry out corporately as a body, financially, manpower, and so forth. It's also a call to personal missions. And that is where I hope that you like I do, seek to be a personal witness in your own life to people with whom you have contact. I love the old Campus Crusade definition of what's an effective witness. It's sharing the claims of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results up to God. We can't change people, but the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It has the power to change people. So do you pray specifically for God to work in, in people's lives with whom you have contact? Do you try and build rapport? and relationships with them. Um, are you becoming equipped to be the most effective witness you can be? I, um, someone taught me to share my faith when I was in junior high school. And um, I was taught that was the normal Christian life, that we are to take the initiative to speak to people about their faith. I didn't realize that what I was being taught then was such a unique teaching. <laughs> that the normal Christian life is that we are to be witnesses. And so hopefully, and I would say this, uh, I've been at it um, a long, long time, over 40 years, and since I was about age 14, and, and I seek to, I get asked questions that I have to do research and study on. I continue to do that, and so I would urge you to be a, a lifelong student of sharing your faith with others. The issues we deal with now, I would say, are completely different from 15 years ago. The questions being asked, 
um, are, 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 are so different. Now they're about lifestyle. Why, so why aren't you for gay marriage? You believe in hell? Um, there are 28 religious groups. There's some 28 collections of writings in the world that, that people see as sacred scripture. Why do you think the Bible's any different? Uh, and standard old ones, if there's a God, why is there so much suffering in the world? Um, but I, uh, I, I think you and I, we, the burden is on us. It says we should be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And that, that, that is an answer. And by the way, when somebody says you're not for gay marriage, uh, I, my answer is, you know, you begin tampering with the basic structure of, 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 even leaving the Bible out of it, you tamper with the basic structure of human society and all the, re, all the writing is that, that children grow up best in a, a two-parent husband and wife, two-parent home, and now you're going to make an aberrant model the standard model. And so I, I think there, there are ways to discuss this stuff that don't just dead end with, with uh, uh, well, I think it's wrong. Why do you think it's wrong? Well, I don't know. And so when somebody, you believe in hell? Yeah, why do you believe in hell? Well, I believe in justice. What do you mean? Well, uh, if you're saying you don't believe in hell, then that means a lot of people that commit atrocities today are going to get off scot-free. So you don't believe in justice. Oh, no, that's not what I said. No, it is. <laughs> because they're not going to get caught in this world. And so uh, I, I believe in justice. And, oh, by the way, that leads right to grace because if there's justice for all of us, then we'll all be punished. You know, so it... But... I don't want to shy away from those, and I hope you don't either. And we don't have to stick our heads in the sand and act like this is a brainless kind of thing. So I think it's a call to personal ministry to be equipped. I hope you are equipped. That means you have to read. It means you, you need to listen to things and expose yourself that way. Billy Graham said the evangelistic harvest is always urgent. The destiny of men and of nations is always being decided. Every generation is strategic. This is a strategic generation. We're not responsible for the past generation. We cannot bear responsibility for the next one. But we do have our generation, and God will hold us responsible as to how well we feel, fulfill our responsibilities in this age and to take advantages of our opportunities. He says, we are to make disciples by baptizing and teaching them all I have commanded you. We don't give out the least amount of truth to the most people, but it's the most amount, the maximum amount of truth to the most people. And look at the word of comfort in verse 20. I will be with you. How long? Always, until the end of the age. There's no expiration date to his promise that I'll never leave you nor forsake you. So you may feel alone. You may say, boy, I'm really alone. I'm the only person that believes this stuff or, or thinks this way or I feel rejected by others. You're not alone. He says, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. And who's with us? The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. So let me leave you with just a few practical things I hope that you might consider doing. I think all of us as Christians should order our lives by this eternal challenge. And it is a challenge, and it is big, and the, the requirements of life, from paying bills, and if you've got a family, and, and just the things that consume all our time, it's easy to live as though the Great Commission does not even exist. 
But if you want a big challenge, how about changing the world one life at a time, making disciples of all nations? Second, educate yourself to the spread of the gospel in the world. I can think of no better place that you would learn more in five minutes this afternoon than joshuaproject.net. joshuaproject.net. I've got a blog. The web address is in the... I've got the link to that. You can click. It's got a map of the world. You can highlight any geographical nation in the world. It will tell you how many ethnic groups are in that nation. In that geographical nation, it will tell you how, what percentage has been reached with the gospel. And it will tell you a whole lot more. JoshuaProject.net. And I'd like to urge you to consider praying every day for the next three months that God would use you to witness for him. Use you to witness for him. Today's May 1st. Why not... During May, June, and July, why not pray every day that God would use you to witness for him, that you would be conscious and alert to to doors that he might open. I want to end with the rest of uh, the closing part of that article I read about Chechnya and that those five million people that live in the Caucasia area that's not been reached with the gospel. And I want to speak especially to the young people, those of you in junior high school or high school, God may call some of you to uh, cross-cultural career missions, that you'd invest your life in this. Jim Elliott, the uh, famous missionary who, along with several of his co-workers, was speared to death by the Alka Indians back in 1956. I remember reading his journals when I was in college, and what I was struck when I read that is that when he was in high school, he began training himself physically as a wrestler for missionary service that wouldn't occur until years later. But he knew then that God had called him to cross-cultural missions. And his passion was to take the gospel to a group of people that had never heard it. He did not want to go to a place that already had a bunch of churches there. And so he, be, he knew in high school that that was his call. Some of you may already sense that. And so as you go to college, hopefully you'll study international business or linguistics or things like that that might serve you in that area. But listen to what they say about the Caucasia area. When it comes to the Caucasia, most missionaries would suggest that before you do anything, you get as close to the living God as you possibly can. So how do you prepare for to be a missionary? Well, first of all, you... You really draw near to God and strengthen your devotional life. Then you redefine short-term to mean years rather than months. Then you pray for the greatest measure of perseverance the Lord will give you. Because it will take perseverance like you can't imagine. After that, a worker would do well to learn Russian. Not only Russian language, but also Russian culture. Would learn the Caucasian cultures. And they should learn Islam in a non-Arabic form. They went on to say it would be irresponsible to oversimplify what it takes to minister in this part of the world. Yet God equips those who are willing, even if it takes five to ten years, to do so. Now maybe in a crowd this size, there's one young woman or one young man. And maybe that's God's plan for you ten years from now that you would begin now with that thought on mind that God will take me to an unreached group of which there's still two billion people in the world 
that they've not only not heard the gospel, they don't have contact with anyone that can tell them the gospel at this point. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the privilege to invest our lives in something that is far bigger than we are. And we see as we look at the end of the Bible, at the book of Revelation, that there will be people there from every tribe, nation, kindred, and tongue. And yet right now, some of those tribes, some of those nations, some of those tongues have not been reached. And so we pray that you might give us a heart for the Great Commission, give us wisdom as to how to invest ourselves with time or money or influence in helping to accomplish it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you take your order of worship, you've got the words to the doxology. Let me invite you to stand, if you will, and hear the benediction of God, then we'll sing together the doxology. And I do hope you will return for 6 p.m. tonight where we'll continue worshiping God together. May grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.